They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators can't make a breakthrough in that time, their chances of resolving the case are greatly diminished. But what if they don't make a breakthrough in the first 48 hours? Or the first 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head and one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 39, A Glimpse Behind the Curtain. Soon after the release of the last episode, I was given a photograph by Eve Stone. A snapshot of Frank Kuhn, Valtraud and Zoe in Stapen Hill Gardens in Burton. The picture showed a happy family. Now photographs can be deceiving, but more often than not, they're not deceiving. Frank didn't look like what I was expecting. In his cardigan and his neat shirt, he looked a bit older than his years. Probably would have been just under 50 at the time, but he looked older. But people did in those days. Zoe, aged about 10, clinging to him. Clearly a deep bond existed between those two. But Valtraud looked happy. The perfect family photograph. The first time I'd seen a picture of the whole family together. And I posted that on Facebook. Now, we have to be careful because photographs of family bliss can mask all kinds of underlying issues. We know that. But Frank looked like a kind, gentle man. He wasn't ravishingly good-looking, and weirdly, I was kind of expecting him to be ravishingly good-looking. Light-haired, with definite Slavic facial features, but as normal as can be, like any one of our family photographs from the 1960s. I feel I've kind of reached the point where I've tried to uncover everything I can about Frank, there are still deep mysteries, his travels, his ability to travel, his access to the deposition site, not least his emigration exactly at the time we think Fred was killed. But I feel it's time to move on from Frank now, not dismissing him completely from the cast of characters, he's far too important for that, but certainly putting him to one side for now. I think we've ploughed that particular furrow enough and it's time to move on to other characters and hopefully dig as deeply into those other characters as we've been able to do to Frank, see where that takes us. So we will definitely come back to Frank Kuhn, but it's time to set our sights elsewhere for the next phase of the investigation. But before I can do that, there were still a couple of more questions I wanted to ask Zoe, a couple of niggling things that I needed answers to. And I'll play you that call. But before, I need to update you on some of the other work that we've been doing since the last episode. One job I've been meaning to do for quite some time, I finally got the opportunity to do. And it's a job that takes time, a lot of time, and I haven't had a lot of time. Every year in the UK, voter information is updated and published. It's called the electoral roll. These are normally kept at local government offices or libraries in the districts in which they were collected. 
the electoral roll for Burton was stored in Burton Library. And fortunately for me, they had every electoral roll going back decades, much earlier than the 60s. So I was in luck. I could get my hands on the electoral roll for every year that we would be interested in, in relation to Fred. I focused my search on the period between 1967 and 1971, because they are the two extremes of our investigation. 1967, because that's when the ring that Fred was wearing was made. He couldn't have been killed before then. And 1971, the year Fred was found. He clearly wouldn't have been around after that. I had originally had this idea because I wanted to work out accurately who'd been living at 126 Newton Road at the time, particularly after Frank, Valtroud and Zoe had left. I had Matthew James Jackson clearly in my sights when I had that idea. It answered that particular question, but it soon became a much bigger exercise. I'll explain. Now, these electoral rolls come in large leather-bound tomes. There's about 200 addresses on every page and about 200 pages, so there's a lot of data in them. Each of them has a date on the front. I think that represents the year they were published, but the data is collected earlier than that, and it's not really clear what that gap is. And I'd be very grateful if anyone knows the answer to that when typically is the data collected and when typically is the data published because that one day may be important but they are a very useful method of recording who was living at which address at a particular point in time and for our investigation i was particularly interested in the period 1967 to 1971. now firstly 126 newton road as we know, 1967, 1968, 1969, the Kuhn family. 1970, 1971, empty. Which suggests to me that the electoral roll data represents a month before September of a particular year, because we know the Kuhn family left in September 69. I'd always thought that John Statham had moved into the Kuhn family house around 1971. I was wrong. John and Frieda Statham, in fact, lived next door. 127 Newton Road. 126 Newton Road was listed as no one living there in 1970, 1971, even though we know Matthew James Jackson was listed as missing from that very house in early 1970. That's a strange one. That's very odd indeed. Now that little job to find out what had happened to 126 Newton Road was a quick process. And I was there and I was surrounded now by all this data from all these years for the whole of Burton. So I decided to undertake a much bigger exercise, which took a long, long time, but yielded some very interesting results. I took a particular year. I chose 1968 because I'm pretty confident Fred was alive in 1968. And I decided to scan those registers for any Central or Eastern European names. Firstly, Windshill, and then Burton, and that includes Stapenhill. I figured that I, by now, would be able to recognize 
Eastern European names or Central European names, and there wouldn't be very many. Unfortunately, people are listed in electoral rolls by street. So it really did mean going through every single address in Burton, Windshill and Stapen Hill. And there were thousands, and I mean tens of thousands of them. So it turned out to be a marathon exercise and they kicked me out of the library in the end, but I had just managed to finish it. So I looked at every address in the area, collected every Central or Eastern European sounding name. And out of that 20 odd thousand, there were exactly 21, four in Windshill and 17 in the wider Burton area, including Stapen Hill. So now for the first time, I had the names and addresses of everyone who sounded Central or Eastern European who was living in the area in early 1968. Now, does that mean that Fred's on that list? Definitely, no, but it equally, he could be. And I do think that there's a better than even chance that Fred came relatively recently from Central Europe. So it was a start. The first time I had people that sounded like they came from that place in my grasp. Now, I wondered whether to take you through all these different names, but I think I will. There's only 21 of them and I could get knocked down by a bus tomorrow and at least then someone who takes over this investigation would know where I'd got to. I should also say I'm focusing on the men here. If it's just women living on their own, there's a couple of them. I've taken them out of the equation. So in Windshill, there were four. Volta Kauchik, Bogdan Illich, Bogdan Pietrasik, and Albert Schalk. And in wider Burton, Borisław Blazak, Władysław Blazerzewicz, Bronisław Szydrowski, Ludwig Alexa, Zygmunt Weisenfeld, Ludwig Schmidt, Ignacy Laudansky, Stanisław Zhikovsky, Sovietino Tedeschi, Ernest Edward Varanka, Borisław Mikolajczak, Zygmunt Valkowiak, Jurko Tarnoweki, Alexander Kedjewski, Kazimierz Tofil, Kazimierz Piekowitz, Josef Jaffa, and Frank Kuhn. Now, the last two. Josef Jaffa lived at Caravan Number no. 2 Waterside Road. That address piqued interest because he's living next door to George Robinson, a character we've heard of before. But Josef Jaffa became known as Polish Joe. And I know people knew he had been around much later. So it isn't Josef Jaffa. And we know Frank Kuhn, of course, ended up in Australia. Fred isn't Frank Kuhn. But 21 people with Central or Eastern European names we know were living in the Burton area in 1968. So I needed to speak with Joe to try and establish how many of these we could trace. And in particular, if we could see evidence of them being alive after 1971, because if they were, they're not Fred. And slowly but surely, between us, we undertook the task of doing that. And it was a long one. So hats off to Joe. That was another long and laborious process she could have done without. 
but little by little we whittled it away until we were left with one unaccounted for. And that man was Ernest Edward Varanka. Now, at first glance, Ernest Edward don't sound particularly Central European, and you'd be right. But remember that Anglicisation of first names is very common. Frank Kuhn was Ferenc Kuhn, for example. And Varanka is a Hungarian name, and that's always of interest because of what we believe may be the case in terms of where the skull originated from. Now, Ernest Edward Varanka lived at 319 Shobnall Street, Burton, in a house divided into flats, and in 1968, it was occupied by four men, Ernest Edward Varanka being one of them. So I needed to dig deeper into Ernest Edward Varanka. So I paid another visit to the library, I'm sure they're very pleased to see me again, about a week later, to see if any of the later electoral rolls could shed any more light on him. Because obviously, if he'd been there in 1972 or 1971, we would be able to cross him off the list as a potential victim. So what did I find? So again, I dug out the electoral roll specifically for that address, 319 Shobnall Street, Burton, from 1966 to 1972. And this is what I found. In 1966, there were no electors. It was unoccupied, it seems. The same in 1967. In 1968, remember that's the original one we saw, there were four people, as we found out earlier, including Ernest Edward Varanka. That's where we first picked him up. In 1969, there were two people living there, including Ernest Edward Varanka. In 1970, there were six people living there, including Ernest Edward Varanka. In 1971, six people were living there, but it didn't include Ernest Edward Varanka. That's interesting. Sometime between the collection data point in 1970 and the data collection point in 1971, Ernest Edward Varanka leaves that address. Now, that can be for a million standard normal reasons, but Given the body was found in 1971, and police believe the body was in the ground for between 9 and 18 months, it's just possible to make that work. None of this at the moment means Ernest Edward Varanka is even a possibility, but it's an interesting find. A Hungarian living alone, but disappearing from the electoral record around that time. So that exercise yielded something, another name to add to the list of interesting characters we need to be aware of. There was one other slight confusion here in that there was and is another family in Burton called Varanka. Varanka, V-A-R-A-N-K-A, is a very, very uncommon name. But the other family, the other person, is called Edward Varanka, who's still around in Burton. We don't think it's the same man. We think Ernest Edward Varanka is different to the other Edward Varanka. So if any of the Varanka family listen to this podcast, or any 
anybody listening is friends with them I'd like to know because I want to get to the bottom of Ernest Edward Varanka so that was a long process a long research project sometimes they yield things sometimes they don't this did of all the Central Eastern Europeans listed in 1968 we have someone that we can't trace Ernest Edward Varanka so he's added to the interesting list and we will at some point do the same exercise for 1969 and 1970 or if there are any volunteers out there let me know this would be a very useful exercise to do and might yield some very interesting results so now you know what I've been up to let's get back to Zoe there was one key question I'd never asked Zoe when exactly did the subject of emigration first crop up the first conversation Zoe and Frank were very close they shared things Zoe was an inquisitive child she'd know I think and the reason this question is key is that if and it's a big if Frank was either involved in or frightened away by the death of Fred if we could pinpoint the first mention of emigration we might be able to get a much closer idea of exactly when Fred was killed again if Frank had any kind of involvement we know that the decision to emigrate was a shock to his work colleagues both at the mill and at the hairdressers but it might have been discussed in the Kun household for months I needed to know if that was the case Hello Zoe, Ken Davis in England. Oh hi, hi, right, I've stopped, I've changed phone so you, your name didn't come up, I think I just stopped my TV show. How are you doing? Oh okay, trying to, trying to stay warm on a cool night, how hey. about you? Well, welcome to England, that, that's what we do every night over here. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's uh, all good, all good, all good. I've got, I've got a couple of things I want to just... Uh, uh, run past you I've only got about 15 minutes but I thought I'd just dive on a call and just see if there's a couple of things I just wanted to ask you yeah um, and by the way I met Eve Stone last week really uh, yeah and she's How is she? she's absolutely bright as a button and was asking all about you and I remember her she was a lovely lady she actually showed me a picture of you and your mum and dad in Stapen Hill Gardens that they'd taken it is amazing, and uh, I'd seen a picture of you before, but but that was in the paper when you were about four. But it's the first time I'd seen yeah. you. You must have been about nine or ten on this, and uh, I'd certainly never seen a picture of your mum or dad before. And and uh, it was great. So, I mean, if you want me to send you that, I've got a I've got a copy of it. If you want me to send you that, that'd be lovely. Uh, just so you've got a copy of that picture of uh, of you three together, all looking very happy. Uh, yeah, a couple of things. When did you first hear at all about the plan to emigrate? Um, I think it would have been somewhere around May of that year. Of 69? 69, 69, yes. So that's the... And obviously... You leave in September, but no one talked about it before May. 
to your knowledge? Uh, there was there was conversation earlier than that in the year before they've been discussing the idea of emigrating and okay. looking at the various places that they could emigrate to. So in in sixty eight, I, I remember for that Christmas, first uh, the Christmas of sixty eight, I got a copy of a book called Jago, mm -hmm. um, and it was set in the outback of Australia. Okay. Um, and that was given to me by one of my friends. I don't remember which one of them, but somebody gave it to me. I know it wasn't something that Mum or Dad gave me. Um. But it was interesting that we had been talking about one of the possible places was Australia. Okay. So um, and after I, after I read the book, I remember thinking, well, you know, out of all the different places, I hope we go to Australia if we're going to emigrate. Right. Because they were thinking of other ones as well, weren't they? South Africa and Canada and New Zealand and things. Yes. Right. So the first kind of roots of the idea are back in 68 and then it becomes more concrete by around May 69. 69 was probably when we started to get responses from the various places and we had to go and do medicals and interviews and stuff like that. Brilliant. That's really useful. Really, really useful. Uh, there's, there's a couple of things I've been digging away at. Uh, I went through all the electoral rolls of Burton, trying to find Eastern European people who appear and then don't appear, if you get my drift, you know, so they're there for a year and then they disappear, because one of them might be Fred. There's really only one person that kind of, that kind of got through that process and we didn't find later on. And it's a man called Varanka, V-A-R-A-N-K-A, -A -A. it's Hungarian name. Right. Uh, does the name Varanka, and his name, it was an anglicised name, He had, his name was Ernest Edward Varanka, but it was anglicised in the same way Ferenc would have been anglicised to Frank. Ernie? Uh, Varanka. Varka? Varanka, V-A-R-A-N-K-A. -A. Could he have, have uh, anglicised it to Varka? He could have done. Why, does that ring any bells? I don't know, it just it just popped into my mind. I don't know where it came from. Okay. Ernie Barker. Okay. I think a guy that worked at the mill. Ernie Barker. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. Something for us to, to track down. Yeah, I, something just flashed into my mind there. I, I don't know... But that's, that's what I'm thinking, um, and I don't know why. But because when you said Varanka, I'm thinking that's a Hungarian name, mm -hmm. and Barka, to me, sounds like the anglicised version of that. Now, why does that sound like the anglicised version of it to me? I don't know. Because Especially added to Ernie. Because you, and, and then you said Ernest, and, and I thought, right, okay, well, if you said Ernest, um, and I'm thinking Ernie Barker, then that might be something. Okay, that's great. That's really interesting to, to know that. Uh, just on that subject there of Hungarians, are there, and I may have asked you this question before, and if I do apologise, I apologise. Uh, any Are there any Hungarians, Hungarians, that you remember? That we used to visit? Yeah. 
just came out of the house, just family friends. Yeah. Um, and they had a circle of friends of various various people that that we saw occasionally at their place or, yeah. or at, at other locations. Any in Burton? Um, any around Burton? Um, I'm not remembering any Hungarians around Burton. But then, my dad was a very friendly fellow, but I don't think he really had friends as such. Okay. Not, not intimate sort of you know, exchange the news about what the dog did yesterday sort of friends. Okay, so he was he was someone with a million acquaintances, but not loads of close friends. I don't remember my father ever having more than one person at a time that he would have a lot of time spent with. Okay. Um, there was a, a, a fellow, George... George Sainzi, um here in, in Australia that mm-hmm. um, he, he spent a lot of time with. But in England, he seemed to spend all his time working yeah. and doing things, um, actively doing things rather than social events. Yeah. I mean, the social events that we attended tended to be things like people's birthdays or anniversaries or weddings. Mm just his the way he was or was that for another reason was that yeah there weren't many hungarians there weren't many people around burton that that kind of he could kind of connect with did did he prefer it that way the problem was that my father found it hard to to locate other other people like himself that had had the same sort of analytical mindset perhaps yeah i find it much the same myself but Yeah, I get that. That's what I understand. Dad, it wasn't that he didn't stay in touch with people. You know, they they would have card nights, and don't think there was anybody he ever actually confided in. Interesting, but of the kind of acquaintances he had around Burton, I mean, are, are there any Hungarians, Czechoslovaks, Polish people, maybe that you remember particularly, or are they are they just kind of transactional people, transient people in and out of his life? There was nobody long-term, really. There was some... Mr. Roland on the corner. Yeah. Um, and occasionally Dad would have a drink in the pub with um, with Derek Webb mm-hmm. um, from across the road. And occasionally, um, well, before Mr. Halstead died, mm. um, the two of them would garden together. Mm-hmm. But nobody, um, nobody of a Euro- of a European uh, background. No, not really. No, um, he he did interact. He did interact with a lot of people, but mostly on his own. Yeah. But in later years, I thought that perhaps the, the the lack of interactions may have been because 
my mum was a bit of a gossip. Perhaps he didn't like to take us places with, and so you know, I got left behind too. Okay. Sometimes, sometimes I did. I mean, you know, we, we used to go places. Dad and I, mum would stay home. She she often often didn't want to go and, and, and visit people. Like he knew people that he'd known for many years, and he used to go and visit them occasionally. Not European people. I just cannot think of any. Interesting. Now, so Varanka maybe doesn't ring any bells as a name. I just wanted to test that. Now, I've mentioned... No, no. I, I've meant there anything else? Another name that comes up, because he's living in your house after you leave, is a man called Jackson. M Matthew Jackson. Yeah, you've mentioned him before. Yeah, that doesn't ring any bells with you, does it? Or does it? I mean, I don't no. Know. No. Okay. No, 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 I don't think it does. Okay, tall man, ginger hair, ginger moustache. No. Okay. That's great. I don't, and, and I, I don't think that was the name attached to the person that, that one of my friends said was creepy in yeah, a phone call. That's that doesn't right. sound like the right name. Okay, interesting. Uh, um, because I've been through the electoral rolls on your house for the years after you leave. No one's, no one's on the electoral roll for three years afterwards. Right. But someone was but living there. Yeah, and they're really interesting. And in fact, I know Matthew James Jackson goes missing from your house six months after you leave. Oh, really? Yeah. And then he loses, suffers memory loss, and he appears in different parts around the country. And he wasn't a nice man. Is he? Is he a potential person who may have caused yeah. Red's body to appear there? Yeah, he's potentially, potentially. Yeah. Uh, wow. this, which is why I'm interested in him. Uh, so, just yeah, a couple of other th quick things. Um, when we spoke last time, you s and I was talking about the hairdressers, and I was talking about getting hold of Eve Stone and things like this. And, and you, I remember you yeah. saying to me, you you think that the hairdressers might be related to this in some way to Fred, if I remember that rightly. Do you, do you think that's the case? And if you do think that's the case, what is it about it that makes you think that? It's only because, it's only because um, the day that I met my dad with the young man that I suspect may be your victim, um, I, I come from the library and we met outside the shop, but I got the impression that he'd come out from the shop, hmm. uh, that he'd been inside with them. Yeah. Um, whether as a customer or whether he was actually another hairdresser, I don't know. And it's only because, it's only because the, the picture that you showed me of, of the reconstructed face reminded me of a young man that I'd already thought about in, the, in connection with this. Right. Okay. Um, and okay. So I, I'm thinking, uh, I, I think I've met the victim. I don't okay. know for sure, but I think I was in the back seat when he was in the front seat of my dad's car. And, and you know, when he got out of the car, I got into the front seat. Yeah, I remember, I remember this, the conversation vividly. So um, the, the reason you might think that the hairdresser was involved in some way is only because, I know, and he's kind of dependent on that man being the victim. There's no other reason to suspect it. It's just that man who we know looks something like the victim. Um, yeah, I, I think I think that's probably what it is. Okay, that's cool. That's good. Um, I just wanted to check that. Yeah, I mean, 
I'm, I'm operating here as much on feelings and, and hunches and, and what have you, simply because you know, it was a long time ago. And they're not things I've thought about for a long time. No, and I am incredibly but, grateful. Yeah, sometimes, yeah you, you say something and something just, you know, a little image pops into my mind or an instant event just flashes past. That's it, really. I just wanted to double-check those things. I'm going to go back to my TV show and, and, and reading my law book at the same time. <laughs> now, enjoy that. If you, I don't know how you can multitask in that way, but I'm going to send you an email uh, with that picture on. Thank you. I'll, I'll whistle yeah, that. I'll, I'll, off you go, and not, lovely to talk to you, and I'll, I'll put your number in my phone so the next time your name comes up. Bless you, Zoe. I'll send you this email, uh, and I'll pass it on to Eve Stone as well. All right, have fun. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So that is where I want to leave Frank, Valtroud and Zoe for now. Time to move our sights elsewhere. There are other characters in this story who deserve that kind of attention. And in a way though, I'm finding myself concentrating on the perpetrator and I want to put the focus back on Fred, who he was, where he came from, how did he come to be killed and buried in Burton? And for a while, for reasons of untraceability, the dentistry, the ring, the possibility that the school is Central European, I've wanted to dig much deeper into the possible European origin for Fred. But where to start? How to start? Well, my guardian angel was looking down on me, and we were about to get some help in that department, and it came in the form of an email from a lady called Magdalena Ruta. Well, about a week ago, I received an interesting email from somebody in Holland, but who had grown up in Czechoslovakia, uh, from a lady called Magdalena Ruta. And I'm pleased to say I've got Magdalena Ruta with me now. So uh, good evening, Magdalena. Good evening. Thank you for having me, Ken. No, that was a really interesting email and uh, it's interesting on, on lots of different levels. And uh, since I received that email, we've had a few conversations subsequent to that. And uh, it'll be a good idea, I think, if we can bring everyone up to date as to where we are with things. But the the first thing I noticed on that email is that you were talking about rings and where people wear rings on which hand in different parts of Europe. So just talk me through that again. Yeah, that's correct. That uh, That's also the reason why I wrote you in the first place, because I was listening to the podcast and then I was completely thrilled by it. I was like binge listening. And then I heard like this interesting twist that, uh, that, that Fred might have been from Eastern Europe, that he might have been from uh, the former Czechoslovakia. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. That's my home country. Uh, and then I heard about the ring. And uh, you said repeatedly on the podcast that um, people in Eastern Europe wear their rings on their right hand. And there was like an inner voice screaming in me, and I was like, "No, no, no, that's not that's not correct. I I have to tell him because uh, that's maybe misleading." So I wrote you an email, and uh, the like the, the the situation is that 
people in Eastern Europe mostly wear their rings on their left hand, with one big exception, and that is Poland. Okay. And I know because I worked in Poland and I noticed that and I was surprised by that. Uh, but uh, I am from a neighboring country, uh, the Czech Republic. Uh, everybody wears their ring on their left hand. You cross the border to Poland, everybody wears their ring on their right hand. So my first thought was, okay, that uh, kind of means that uh, Fred was not from, uh, from uh, Czechoslovakia. If he was wearing it as a as a wedding ring, that's probably true. Yeah, yeah, probably true. But then I also like have a, a piece of my own history because I got married uh, to a Dutch guy a couple of years ago, and he would wear his ring on his right hand because right. that's uh, customary in uh, in uh, parts of Holland, uh, the Netherlands, and in Belgium. Uh, people would usually wear their ring on their right hand and I would wear mine on my left hand. So we had a little discussion and we agreed that we both uh, wear our rings on our left hands, but it could have been the other way around. So I was thinking, okay, maybe Fred um, was from Czechoslovakia, but he married a Polish girl, woman, and then they Mm -hmm. decided to wear their rings on the same hand like we did. So that's, that's, that's the story. And it's an interesting story. And I think that, that that is very, very useful information in its own right. But then we started to dig a little bit deeper because you come from a town in the Czech Republic, which has kind of similarities to Burton in the sense of it's a big brewery town. Absolutely. And, and we started talking about that. And I have this absolutely unfounded idea that there's a possibility because Burton is famous the world over for its brewing. If someone was coming from Czechoslovakia, particularly with a brewing background, they may well have come from a town in the Czech Republic, which itself had a brewing industry. So tell me about your town and, and we'll just dig a bit deeper into that. Yeah, I was born in uh, Česká Budějovice, uh, but it's worldwide known uh, by its uh, German name, and that is Budweiser. Budweiser. Yeah. The original Budweiser beer comes from that town, mm-hmm. and it's very famous for for its uh, beer brewing history. So I was like, yeah, okay, that's my hometown. I can give it a shot. I can get in touch with people uh, from the brewery. I can search for a person who worked there uh, at 1968 or around that year and probably retired already and then go meet that person and ask them if they remembered someone like Fred, show them the picture, maybe they remember something. So that was my first thought about what I could do, what I could be helpful with. But then it kind of developed a little bit further. Because, yes. <laughs> because because quite a long way further because of, of the kind of work that you were doing and the the uh, how deep you were digging and then it it, it you, you kind of got into the Czech secret police archive oh yeah oh yeah um you know my my background is uh, in journalism I graduated from uh, journalism and um since then I've been working as a journalist but also as communications manager, marketing manager, which is my current occupation. 
but I know how to work with sources. I know how to ask questions. I know how to like search for things, for information. So I thought, okay, um, this might be interesting. So it was someone who probably left the country in 1968. Hmm, that was a very difficult year for, for, the, for the former Czechoslovakia because uh, in, uh, in the spring of 1968, uh, there was like this so-called Prague Spring when the country opened a little bit, not just a little bit, quite a lot. People were allowed to travel again. Uh, the communist regime was like loosening up. Many people used the opportunity to go abroad, uh, and some of them didn't return uh, after the August of 1968, when Soviet army invaded the country, closed the borders again, repressed uh, all this like uh, amazing um, atmosphere, and uh, stayed for next 40 years. Yeah. So I was like, okay, uh, how can I find uh, something more about people who left the country at that time? And I knew for a fact uh, that uh, the archives of former Czech state secret police were unclassified in the 90s after the Velvet Revolution in 1989. Mm-hmm. So I asked for access to these archives, to the files. And From your hometown? Yeah, uh, from no, 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 like from from the whole country. Wow, from the whole country, and uh, um, because uh, now we luckily live in the modern times, and I could verify my identity. Uh, I I was granted the access, and I was like, okay, let's uh, see what I can find. And uh, indeed, I found that uh, the secret police uh, they were. Um, uh, tracking all people who left the country uh, in 1968-69. Then the borders closed again, so it was almost impossible to, to leave the country after that. Just uh, one question, Magdalena, yeah. on that. Was there a huge exodus of people in eight, 1968 that was so much bigger than previous years and years after? Was 1968 a year when many people left the Czech Republic, or Czechoslovakia as it was then, which which was much greater than any previous year or any year after that. Absolutely. Uh, I found statistics uh, from uh, the document. It, it, I found something like the first document I found because I obviously started with my hometown and the region around it, the southern part of, uh, of the Czech Republic. Uh, I found uh, statistics. So to give you an example, in 1967, 30 people from that region left the country, like emigrated. Uh, and in, in the year 1968, it was 400 people. Only Just from in that, that region. region. Just in that region, you know. Yeah. And so it's uh, more than 1,000% increase, I guess, mm. if I mm. count it correctly. Mm. So... So and then it continued in 1968. So these were like thousands of people who left the country in 1968 and 69. And the secret police were keeping an eye on them. Now, that's interesting, because if there's that number of people leaving the country, it would be very difficult for the secret police to keep an eye on all of them because they they're all over the world by now. 
but were they specifically interested in certain types of people or were they equally interested in everybody? Well, they were absolutely interested in two specific groups of people. And those people are, these people are also mentioned in this like annual report that I found. It's mostly statistics, but there are two groups of people they were very concerned about. And first group of people obviously were their own agents who used the opportunity, used these, this like uh, window in time and left the country without any prior notice, just disappeared. And they were very, very keen on keeping an eye on them because they were very upset about uh, their own agents leaving. Just, just to be clear on that, we're talking about communist agents Absolutely, absolutely. Who, who had taken the opportunity to, to, yeah, to leave. Left. Yeah, yeah, wow. because the borders were open, so they just they just left. They're and, the very people uh, you'd expect to stay because absolutely. suddenly... Yeah, yeah, awaiting Russians and uh, yeah. welcoming them with open arms. But those people left, uh, and they were very concerned about that because communist agents, those were usually spineless people who were also highly likely to flip <laughs> when yeah. going to the other side. They didn't mostly do it for the love of the regime. They did it for their own, not, not even only for financial profit, but they mostly did it because they love the feeling of uh, having power over Correct. other people. Yeah, I can understand that. This was the first group that they were really, really concerned about. Their own agents. Yes knowing yes. the secrets and knowing the internal workings of the yes. of of the Czech secret police when some of them not many but some of them were now in the west yes okay. for example from my region it was i think four of them right so four of them from your re region alone yeah yeah right so if that was the first group what was the second group of people they were particularly interested in and uh, and the second group were people who had access to some sort of uh, classified information because mostly because of their work. So to give you an example, I found a uh, captain in the army who was a dentist and who knew a lot about what was going on in the army in the region. And this guy left also. Mm -hmm. And they were also very upset about that. Upset? Does upset mean they've made a specific note in the archive that this person is someone we need to track down? We Absolutely, yes. Wow. But these are these are the people that uh, we definitely have to uh, follow up, and um, I'm what I'm hoping to find in the in the in the other files that I asked for uh, to find some update on these people if they were found if they left with their family or alone because probably in the case of Fred we are looking for someone who left alone hmm. something like that. So very interesting. Now, 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 I, now we need a bit of patience because uh, some of these files are accessible online, but not all of them. So I'm right now in touch with a very kind librarian from uh, from the archive, and uh, she's helping me with uh, unearthing all the missing documents that I would like to I would like to read. Well, you are our official person in Central Europe now, even though you're in the Netherlands, I wouldn't class it as that. But, <laughs> but, but clearly that's your that's your home ground. So that's that's really, really useful. One of the things um, 
I think you mentioned, which is interesting as well, is that there are organisations in the Czech Republic whose task really is to try to document where people went to and 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 they may be organisations that might be able to help if we circulate some information about Fred to them. Yeah, definitely. That was also one of my initial ideas when I approached you by email, uh, because I was like, yeah, okay, I know about uh, organizations, state organizations and non-profit organizations. Um, and uh, they are like deeply like involved in researching and documenting um, everything what was going on. Um, basically not in the in the year 1968, but during the whole communist era. But this year, of course, is particularly interesting because something very important happened. Uh, so I was like, yeah, okay, I, I can give it a shot. I can, I can uh, put together some information about Fred, how he looked like, uh, what what were his like unique characteristics of his appearance uh when did he leave how did he die and i try my plan is to contact them and um, to help them to spread the spread the word maybe it'll ring a bell no that's really really interesting incredibly helpful now just coming back to this idea that yeah there are lots of there are lots of ways how fred could be from the czech republic or from czechoslovakia mm. at the time uh he could even though he has his wedding ring on his right hand uh he as you say he could have married someone who didn't have that uh scenario he could have been a gay man and certainly absolutely absolutely and that would be also like a, a realistic scenario because uh, in a former czechoslovakia uh it was punishable by prison to to be gay so if he if he were gay then it would only make sense that he escaped the country when when it was possible interesting i guess the the way we're kind of thinking about it at the moment is given the time of his death given the fact mm. that we think that he was in the country a relatively short period of time and given what was happening in the Czech Republic in 1968, Czechoslovakia, particularly the Czech Republic, the Bohemian area of Czechoslovakia, is very, very much in our thoughts in terms of a mm. potential place. So is Hungary. Has this, I think, uh, the wedding ring on the left hand. I will need to maybe check that. But one of the other countries you mentioned, which I just wanted to draw into this conversation, was Poland. Because you said you yes. worked in Poland and you saw that all the time in Poland. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, everybody wears their wedding ring on their right hand in Poland. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's what everybody does. So it would be a logical assumption to think that Fred was Polish because of the ring. Yeah, well, and also because of what was happening in the country in 1968. Well, this is new to me because I've always, uh, I know about Czechoslovakia in 1968. And of course, 1968 was a year that there was lots of riots in London, in Paris, in America. Mm. I didn't appreciate until you informed me of this, that there mm. was a significant amount of of cultural upheaval in Poland in 1968. Yes, it was in the spring of 1968. Uh, and it was in uprising mostly uh students were active 
and then uh, it was brutally repressed. People were like horribly punished uh, for for taking part in this, and uh, many of them were forced to emigrate, especially people of uh, Jewish ancestry, because somehow in Poland it was like uh, a, a like anti-Semitic uh, campaign. Uh, really like uh, getting momentum in 1968 uh, coming from uh, from uh, uh, their own communists uh, and so we can definitely see a lot of polish people emigrating in 1968 and being even forced to emigrate because uh, of their participation in in this uh, upheaval well that's interesting because i mistakenly had thought that leaving Poland in 1968 would be practically impossible because of the the state of the Cold mm. War. Mm. But what you're saying is that one of the punishments given to these people who had been involved in this rioting in 1968 was actually forced emigration. Uh, that's what I found. I'm not a specialist in uh, Polish history, was searching for relevant information on that uh, particular part of their history and this is what I found so maybe if there's someone listening to this from Poland and can give you more information on that but this is what I found. That's fascinating certainly my favorite theory at the moment is this person came from Central or Eastern Europe mm. and uh, I've never really properly included Poland because I thought it was a closed community but maybe, given what you said there about the uprising in, it, well, well, the, the riots, demonstrations in 1968, we need to take Poland more seriously as well. But Yeah, I think we should. Well, we've got you on the team now. You are officially a member of the close-knit factory of ideas. What uh, an honour. <laughs> well, for us, not for you. Uh, so it's great to have you aboard and uh, I know that one of the things that we'll be able to look forward to now and why it's so great that you're involved as a Czech speaker and as somebody who has got experience of culturally that area uh, I think that puts us in a far far better position to start investigating and liaising with some of these bodies in these countries that might be able to identify who he was. Yeah I hope so. I'm I'm certain. I'm confident of it. I'll do my. I'll do my best to well, to help. <laughs> I'm sure that will be good enough. So, Magdalena, thank you for joining us, and thanks for being on the podcast. And really looking forward to updates regularly. Thank you very much, Ken. I'm looking forward to it too. So that's going to be interesting. Opening up a Central European investigation that will complement our UK-based research. It's been hard work since the last episode. But we found someone we need to trace and there have been plenty of other things happening some of which i can't tell you about yet but i hope very soon i'll be able to update you on there's a lot going on in the background it feels like we're opening up new avenues of the investigation so be patient this will take forever it'll take as long as it takes but i think we'll have some very interesting things to update you on over the next few weeks. But that's for next time. 
So until next time, have a good one. The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSE Media production. Written, produced and narrated by myself, Ken Davis.